Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we praise you again that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who, who cares for us. Um, Father, as we open up your word, we ask that you will enlighten it for us, that you will uh, show us something new or remind us of something that we might have forgotten, God. Um, there's so much in your word and so much truth in your word. And we love you because, well, partly because you saved your word for us so that we can know you. So, Father, I pray that you will help us to know you through your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So again, we're continuing our sermon series uh, called The Return from Exile, and we are looking at uh, what's called the post-exilic texts. And so these are the texts in the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. These are the texts in the Old Testament from when the uh, Israelites came back from uh, exile. Um, so we are looking at six different books in this series. It's Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. Those are the historical books. And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the prophetic books. And as we read through these, you get to see how this one story kind of intertwines throughout these six books. Um, and with, uh, with, this with this series, the whole idea of the series is depending on God. No matter what else is going on, we have to depend on God. And right now we're in Ezra, and this is the beginning of the return. But this morning, actually, we're going to go through Ezra 4 and Haggai 1. Now, that's a lot of text. Again, I'm not going to read all that text up here this morning, but Ezra 4 and Haggai 1. When we first started this series, I said, you know, when you look at your Old Testament, it's not ordered chronologically. It's not ordered in time. Uh, so when you find Ezra chapter 4, go ahead and keep your finger there and turn over to Haggai chapter 1, and they're not anywhere near each other physically in your Bible, but they will be, uh, you'll see that they actually line up time-wise here. Um, the main, or the, the title of this sermon this, this morning, though, is Opposition. And what we see in this text is that God's presence is greater than our enemy's opposition, or God's presence is greater than the Jews' enemy's uh, opposition. And we see that playing out in three different ways, and that's uh, the intimidation tactics from the opposition, and then the Jews respond in fear, but finally they, turn, they, they depend on God's presence. So that's intimidation tactics, responding in fear, and God's presence. So over the past two weeks, we've seen Cyrus uh, of Persia issue a decree to allow the Jews to return from exile, to rebuild the temple, and he gave them uh, funds uh, or means to fund the project. Then as they were beginning to rebuild, they started with the altar. And as soon as the altar was complete, they started offering sacrifices. Once the foundation of the temple was complete, uh, though there were some complainers, they, there were many who praised God. But unfortunately, the problems go further than just a few complainers, as we, will start, as we will see when we start reading chapter 4. So we'll go ahead and get right into that. It says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the, exiles, uh, that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. And so we see that they are, right away, they are labeled as the enemies. So these people are those who are surrounding the Jews as they return, the people who are already in the region. They're identified as enemies here, but this is not the first time that we've seen them. They were mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, Ezra says that the Israelites made burnt offerings on the altar, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. But Ezra gives us a clear explanation as to why these people are here when we look in verse 2. 
After the Assyrians defeated the kingdom of Israel and sent them into exile, they brought other people into the land. And these people offered to help the Jews to rebuild the temple. So these people said that they were brought here by King Esarhaddon of Assyria. So after the Assyrians kicked out the Israelites, they uh, had other people that they exiled from their homelands, and they had, had to have somewhere to put them. And so they put them there in Israel. So let's keep reading. It says, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israelites' families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of, the reign of King Cyrus, and uh, King Cyrus of Persia and the reign of King Darius of Persia. So these family heads, Zerubbabel and Jeshiah, they respond and they say, you may have no part with us in building the land. Sorry, I forgot to highlight that part. So you may, you may have no part with us in building a house for our God. So the Israelites, they're led by Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and Jeshiah, Jeshua, they quickly declined the help from their enemies. Now on the surface, the offer would seem to make sense. More people to help with the building? That sounds good. More people to help fund the building project? That sounds good too. Might be a good way to lessen the tension between the people groups. Plus, there are many Old Testament passages that indicate that foreigners will be allowed to worship at the temple. But on the other hand, passages like Isaiah 56.6 present some requirements for these foreigners to be able to do so. Things like keeping the Sabbath. These foreigners claimed to be worshipers of Yahweh but their lives apparently told a different story because the Israelites said, no, you will have no part in this with us. Now, in talking about the overall scope of this sermon series, I've mentioned that I think this will be good for us as a church to look at this at, at, as, at victory since we are considered a church revitalization. Now, so the lesson that we can learn from the Israelites here in, in Ezra 4 and apply it to our specific situation is this. There have been times, and there will be times, where we will be tempted to turn away from what God has called us to and, uh, because of some other promise. This is precisely what has happened to many of the mainline denominations. As our society around us liberalized and became more secular, so did they. The thought was, well, if people are becoming less biblically proficient, well, or, or maybe they're being offended by the Bible, then we can simply change certain parts of it or ignore other parts of it or adapt to different parts of it so the people will come. Well, once a church starts down this road, it's hard to turn it around. And once a denomination starts down that road, it's almost impossible to recover. These mainline denominations have sacrificed the inerrancy of Scripture to appease the literary critics. They've watered down the gospel to appease those th that preach tolerance. Now, generations later, the mainline denominations are on the brink of death. If you don't believe me, look at the state of Christianity in Europe. That's exactly what happened to those churches there. They turned away from the, 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 uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. They've watered down the gospel. And now those churches across that continent are close to death. But when we look at other places around the world where churches are holding true to the inerrancy of Scripture, they're holding true to the gospel, those places, the church is growing the church is flourishing. And so, you know, we think a lot of times, we look back through our history, the history of Christendom, and we see missionaries coming from uh, Europe and going to places like Africa, or places like China, or places like India. Well now, Africa and China and India are sending missionaries into Europe. 
because those places are holding true to the, the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word, and they're not backing down from it. And those churches there are growing. So we must hold fast to the truths of God, and that starts with his word and with his gospel. We must not budge on those. The word of God is preserved for us in the Bible. It is inerrant, it is God-inspired, and perfect for teaching, training, and learning about God. And the gospel is the fact that we are sinners, separated from God, but loved by Him. He loves us so much that He sent His Son to take the punishment for our sins. And He was resurrected in victory over sin and death. When we place our faith in Him, our sins are forgiven, and our relationship with God is restored. We can spend eternity with Him in heaven. That's the gospel. We cannot turn away from that. Those are our first two non-negotiables as a church. So, in one sense, the Jews did a great job of holding off their enemies. But, in another, on the other hand, they failed. Because they were too afraid to continue building the temple. See, God brought these Jews back from exile with a specific purpose. He brought them back. He called them back from exile to rebuild the temple. They had gotten started. They built the altar. They started offering burnt sacrifices. And they laid the foundation of the temple. But then, when their neighbors really put the pressure on them, they stopped doing their job. They stopped doing what God had called them to. So just a few minutes ago, I mentioned two non-negotiables for us as a church. Here's two more, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. As a church, we cannot turn back from that. We must hold true, we must hold fast, we must love God first. Put Him first above all else. And the Great Commission... The Great Commission is where Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples. Without, uh, sorry, we can say that we hold to God's word and the gospel, but without the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, we're not following through with what his word has told us to do. So the Jews let the social and political pressures stop them from being obedient. We must not make the same mistake. This is why here at Victory, our vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, the Jews did not take just a short pause. It says that it uh, made them afraid to build from, uh, throughout the, uh, the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now, when we look at this, it's, it's a little bit confusing uh, when we read this account, especially when we get into the verses that follow in verse 6, uh, verse six to 23. Ezra mentions three different kings in verses 5 and 6. It starts with Cyrus then talks about Darius and uh, Ahasuerus. Then another king, Artaxerxes, in verse 11, and finally refers back to Darius in verse 24. So what Ezra is doing in verses 6 through 23, he's offering a parenthetical account of just how the enemies of, Judah, of Jerusalem opposed them rebuilding the temple. So he's, he's telling this story, and then he says, okay, pause on the story for a second. We're going to take a step back, and I'm going to give you some few examples here of exactly how this is happening, and then we'll come back to the story. And he, re he comes back to the story in the, the current timeline down in verse 24. So there seems to be a 15-year gap from the time when they stopped building in verse 4 until they continued building in verse 24. Therefore, something must have happened to cause them to start building again, because when you have something as a culture that you stop doing for 15 years, there must be something big that happens for that culture to resume that something that happened, that they had stopped doing. So to see what that something was, we need to look at another book, and that's Haggai. So we're going to go to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. 
It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. Now, I know a lot of you look at those little details and you just kind of skim right over them. But it's those little details that help us to place these, all these different uh, scriptures together into one story. It helps us to put the timeline together. And it's those little details that nerds like me really enjoy. So, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, The people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be built. So God is speaking through Haggai to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, if you're really paying attention, you will notice that these are the same two people that were mentioned in that book of Ezra, the leaders of the Jews who returned. Just a quick note, yes, in Ezra, the name is Jeshua, but now in Haggai, it's Joshua. But we talked about this last week that Joshua and Jeshua and Yeshua and Jesus, it's all the same name, just different translations of that same name. So don't get tripped up on the spelling here. Um, anyways, God acknowledges that the enemies of the Jews tell them it's not time to build this house, but God has other plans and other directions. So we keep reading, picking up in verse 3. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld its dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and all that your hands produce. So... That was kind of a big chunk there. Like I said, I don't like to read big chunks, but in that chunk, let's just recap what happened, what, is, what, is, uh, what Haggai has just told them. The Israelites, or the, the Jews, they're sitting there, and they're struggling to do even the most basic things. Their farming efforts always come up short. They can't quench their thirst. They can't satisfy their hunger. They can't put on enough clothes to get warm, and their money just seems to end up missing. And God says that the reason for this is simple. The people, they built nice houses for themselves, but they didn't finish building the temple. God gave them a job to rebuild the temple, but they didn't follow through. Now, this is not, this is not God saying that the Jews can't have nice things, but He is saying that you are neglecting worshiping Me so that you can have these nice things. And since you are neglecting worshiping Me, I'm going to take those nice things away from you. Since they neglected their mission, God was disciplining them. But God also told them if they would just go get the lumber to build and start building the temple, then he would be glorified. With the, uh, and then with that, the implication is that he would restore their prosperity. When I think about this passage and how it applies to victory, I vividly remember a conversation with Miss Deborah when we started planning VBS last year. Now, I don't have her permission with this, but I, I think she'll be okay with me sharing this. She started off by commenting that we were starting to see more children uh, attending. But... 
She quickly teared up and started, you know, I saw last week, Miss Deborah can tear up very quickly. She quickly teared up and said, God has blessed us with these children and we've got to do something with them and for them. And if we don't, then God's going to send them somewhere else. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you saw Miss Deborah give a very emotionally charged encouragement from God. And I think that was the same thing that was happening at that moment. We have so many things that God has given us to do. God has given us a mission to do. Yes, it is to make disciples, but God also has given us a mission to care for our young people. When we are following through with those mission, with that mission, and doing what God has told us to do, then He will bless us. That's what Haggai does here for the Jews. He's giving them this emotional uh, uh, encouragement. So how do the people respond? We keep reading. Picking up in verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, and Joshua, uh, sorry, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them, so the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So the people responded with obedience. They heard the word of God through the prophet, and they got back to work rebuilding God's temple. Now there's one specific part of Haggai's message here that I want to point out that kind of sticks out to me. God says, I am with you. See, God's presence is promised to the Jews. They are encouraged because of God's presence. He is there to give them power over their enemies. They're guided by God's presence. He is there to give them wisdom. They're held accountable by God's presence. He's there to make sure that the work continues. And they are blessed by God's presence. He is there to fulfill their created purpose. See, we're all created to be in relationship with God. But because of our sin, we are separated from God. But Jesus came to restore that relationship. Our guilt drives us away from the presence of God. But Jesus draws us back in. When Jesus justified us through his sacrifice, he gave us his righteousness. And we call out to him for salvation that reestablishes our relationship with God. God told the Jews, I am with you. But Jesus also promises his presence. If you look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is the great commission that I was talking about earlier. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus promises his presence just like God's promise in the Old Testament. And just like God's promise in the Old Testament, we are to be encouraged guided, held accountable, and blessed by Jesus' presence. He says to make disciples, but you're not going to be going and doing this alone. Go make disciples, and I will be right there with you along the way. So what application do we get from this? Remember, our application always comes from our definition of a disciple. And that definition of a disciple is uh, Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. So a disciple is identified by and growing in uh, these three areas, the knowing, being, and doing. So what know do we get from this? What knowing do we get here? It's to know that Jesus is with you. Jesus' is, Jesus's presence is promised to the Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you are separated from God because of your sin. 
but you don't have to stay apart from him. You can be reconciled with him through your faith in Jesus. He will forgive you in your sins, and you, uh, he will forgive you of your sins and declare you to be righteous. Your relationship with God can be restored, and you can know that God will be present with you always. Because of Jesus' presence, we don't need to fear our enemies. Because of Jesus' presence, we can rely on his wisdom. Because of Jesus' presence, we can make disciples. And because of Jesus' presence, we are blessed. The B application is to be firm in your faith. Now, I laid out two non-negotiables in the, first in the first section of the sermon, and that is that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God and that the Gospel is the only way to salvation. As a church, we must not budge on those two truths. And the only way that we can hold true to those two as a church is if we do as individuals as well. And the doing is to love God and make disciples. These two action points come straight from what Jesus said was the greatest commandment and what He commissioned His disciples to do. How do you make disciples, though? Well, that's not an answer that I can give you as just the final application point in the sermon. Just a quick search on Amazon shows that there have been over 30,000 books written on this subject alone, just on making disciples. So, I am of firm belief that it starts in relationship. It starts in relationship. Making disciples happens best through the people that you spend time with and are intentional about using that time for both of you to grow closer to God. So know that Jesus is with you. Be firm in your faith and love God and make disciples. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we praise you for your word and we thank you for your word. Lord, as a church, I, I, I just I pray that we can surrender to you time and time again, every day, everything that we do, God, I pray that we bring it to you, um, that we get it from you and your guidance and your wisdom, and that we, we operate through your power, God. Father, I pray that you will help us to know that your presence is promised to us. Help us to know that, that you are with us. Help us to be firm in our faith. Help us, God, to love you and to make disciples. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.